And that jarring cacophony tells you that you're listening to the Doctor Who podcast that travels through time and space, looking for a happy place, and we usually tend to find one each and every Thursday. I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. I'm doing lots of podcasts this month because it's Doctor Who's 60th anniversary. And I had the idea, damn my eyes, suggested it to Kenny a while ago, that one episode that we could do, because Kenny and I are big fans of Big Finish, as you, as you probably know, listeners, and... It's not only is it the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who this month, it's the 10th anniversary of the 50th anniversary. <laughs> and this led me to think, wouldn't it be fun to do an episode about Big Finish's 50th anniversary release, uh, which they did in conjunction with Audio Go, which was Destiny of the Doctor? I thought, wouldn't that be fun? So I suggested it to Kenny, and of course Kenny said... Absolutely. And so for the last two or three weeks, whenever I've not been listening to other podcasts, I've been cramming Destiny of the Doctor again. And by and large, enjoying it all very, very much indeed. Yeah, it's, for those who don't know, it's a story in 11 parts, each part written by a different writer, and there's little elements in each of them that all combine and come together in the final story. Yeah, very much in the format of the Big Finish Companion Chronicle, which has a, tends to have at least one returning Doctor Who cast member and one other guest voice, very often narrated, sometimes dramatised. One of my absolute favourite Big Finish ranges. Um, they very regularly have sales on them, and a lot of the earlier ones are already reduced in price. I would recommend. Well, out of the, I haven't heard them all. I've heard most of them, and I, I could be. I would struggle to think of any that I didn't enjoy at all. I, as a big First Doctor fan, um, I would really recommend everything with with Peter Purvis or William Russell or Caroline Ford or Maureen O'Brien or Jean Marsh. They're all terrific they really really are the first Doctor ones are amazing so yes but we're not talking about Companion Chronicles today we're talking about Destiny the Doctor Ken did you listen to these at the time? I did indeed I was really excited by this range in fact I actually remember listening to the second story The Shadow of Death when I was on the tube in London Right. I think I was yeah looking at it it would be February February 2013 it was released so I would have been going to the recording of Domain of the Vord by Andrew Smith and I remember listening to this when I was on the tube to actually go there. Well, Andrew wrote one of the, the stories, obviously. Um, you know, I was excited when it was first announced because I thought something different. And I like the fact that it's it's like a collect and build action figure or something like that with all these little bits and little elements that all come together towards the final story. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's very. I didn't listen to it at the time. Um, 2013, I was I hadn't been a regular Big Finish listener for a while but during that year because I had started listening to Toby Haydock's Who's Round podcast which um still available from Big Finish and was released through Big Finish I fell into the habit of listening to the Big Finish podcast as well and having the right laugh at Mr Briggs and, and the late Paul Sprague and all that sort of stuff and because they'd be trailing and talking about various other Big Finish things I started dipping my toes back in I remember buying one of the Companion Chronicles with one of Sergeant Benton which I think was Council of War yep. and it was kind of like it was a cross between Abigail's party and something else but it was really really good I'm not selling it very well but John Levine was tremendous in it and um, it just, it's a shame they didn't get the chance to do any more you know, so I didn't listen to Destiny of the Doctor at the time I picked it up when it was on sale a few years later so why don't we find out a wee bit about the series uh, how it came to be and so on by the man who produced it and directed all 11 parts. He's now the senior producer of Big Finish and there's a nice feature on him in the current issue of Vortex, or at least it's the current issue as we talk in October. It's John Ainsworth. 
Uh, well, my name is John Ainsworth, and I was the producer of Destiny of the Doctor. Welcome to The Power of Three, John. So, do you recall how you came to be involved with the whole Destiny of the Doctors project? It was a bit unusual, because it's actually a co-production between what was then called Audio Go and Big Finish. And I work for both companies, or did work for Audio Go and, and still work for BBC Audio with Michael Stevens. Michael Stevens um, looks after all the Doctor Who audio originals for what was Audio Go and now BBC Audio. And I think it must have been wanting to do something to tie in with the anniversary. So I, th I suspect the idea was mainly Michael's, I think, um, to do basically a different story for each of the then uh, 11 Doctors. I must admit, I'm not quite remembering clearly why Big Finish got involved, but we did sort of get involved as a co-production. So technically, I was working for Big Finish, who had sort of been commissioned by Audiogo to produce the productions. But of course, it, it all becomes a bit sort of blurred and, you know, uh, you know, right, who was doing what for which, you know, and because we all sort of get on and, and can have conversations and everything. But yeah, I think given given the idea, I think I remember talking to Nick Briggs quite a bit about it, about the, the basic overall story idea and arc and everything um, and how it would work. The original hope was that we would actually get Matt Smith involved, not just to narrate the 11th Doctor story, the final story, but we we created it so that there was a little message from the 11th Doctor being sent back in time to all his previous selves. And it was done in such a way that Matt could have read those little messages uh, and, uh, you know, that's what would have been heard in each of the individual releases. But at the point we were writing them, we didn't know for sure whether we would be able to get Matt or not. And of course, the 50th anniversary year, he's going to be incredibly busy. So it was designed to work either way. And as we know, in the end, unfortunately, we couldn't get Matt. So all, all the little messages were read by um, the principal readers of each of the individual stories and still work very well, I think. So, yeah. Definitely. And it's a different format as well. It's different to, it's sort of like the hybrid between what Big Finish were doing with Companion Chronicles and what BBC Audio were doing with original stories there. Yes, it was definitely, it was, from the Big Finish point of view, it was very sort of like a companion chronicle. Uh, you had a principal reader and a, a second supporting voice. So the story would be narrated, but it would break out into little sort of scenes which would be played more like a two-hander. So, and, and yes, and, the, and obviously the idea was that we selected the readers uh, where at all possible that were appropriate for the era. So Caroline Ford read the first Doctor story, uh, Fraser did the second, etc. It became a little more difficult later on for some of them. I mean, we we knew we wouldn't get Chris Eccleston to do the ninth Doctor one. And in fact, I think that's the only one that doesn't have a second supporting... Oh, no, it does have a second supporting voice, doesn't it? Yes, it, it's... John Schwab. Um, yes, John Schwab, who had been in Dalek with Nick. Yeah, so, uh, yes, but that was a little bit different than that Nick... Yes, he did the Dalek voice, but he, he hadn't been a companion or, or obviously a doctor, basically. So I think that was the, the the only sort of break we made from that. I think all the others were companions, I think. So, yeah, so we, we did quite well. And it was very exciting you know, for, for the last one to be able to work with Catherine Tate and Jenna Coleman, which was the first time they'd done anything for, for Big Finish. And 
was brilliant that they sort of agreed to do it really so uh that was exciting and i directed all of these which was fabulous really so it was a great way for me to spend the anniversary uh, or leading up to it because i was meeting all these you know doctor who companions and actors from all, all the eras of the show which was amazing <laughs> do you remember how the different writers came to be chosen i think i definitely had an input into that and again i think that the big com- that initial big conversation with nick led to his choosing writers that we thought were appropriate and i suspect we passed them all by michael just to make sure he was happy with the choices uh, and he probably possibly suggested some people as well i mean there were definitely people like Dan jones who'd i'd done quite a bit with on the on the bbc audio side of things but i i think at that point that was the, the first thing that Dan had ever done for big finish i think so we we put him together with the 10th doctor i think all the other Everyone else had, had probably worked for Big Finish at some point in the past. So yeah, we did. I, I think we were quite keen that each writer particularly liked the era that we were asking them to write for. So Nigel Robinson, I knew sort of, you know, enjoyed the first Doctor side of the thing. So giving him a, a, a pre-unearthly child uh, story to write, I think he was quite excited about that. And, um, so I think everyone was happy with what they got. <laughs> Definitely, because I think you're marrying up somebody like or Andrew Smith to do Vengeance of the Stones, that sort of unit era. It feels very much something, again, he grew up watching it. Johnny Morris doing Babblesphere. This, yeah, yes. it's very much, this, the, every mix, and obviously Nev rating for Nicola. Just everything was such a, a perfect, perfect match. In fact, Johnny Johnny writing Babblesphere, yeah, I remember that being very much, because I'd I'd read ages ago, he, he wrote one of the BBC novels called Festival of Death, which was very much a sort of Douglas Adams era, Fourth Doctor story. And and knowing that we were get, getting Lala to, to do the reading, I very much wanted something that would feel like it would fit in that sort of season 17 uh, era. And, and Johnny was the obvious choice for that. And I think I really, I, I'm pretty sure it was me who suggested Johnny to do that. And, uh, and of course he did exactly that. I remember Lala said she, thought he was the most Douglas Adams script she'd read that wasn't by Douglas Adams. I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And of course, we get Enemy Aliens, the Eighth Doctor story. Now, from with my Eighth Doctor fan head on, at the time, I was absolutely delighted by this because it was like legitimising Charlie being in a BBC release and also used the David Arnold version of the theme. So it sort of pulled sort of everything Big Finish had done and made it feel more official, which I got really excited about in a very silly way. Yes, I think I was quite excited about doing the Eighth Doctor because, of course, the question came up, well, you know, we we know we can use uh, the Eighth Doctor, but we can't really have any of the characters from the TV movie, but we wanted them to have a companion um, of, of some kind. And so, yeah, I think we sort of said, well, we'd like it to be India, really, you know, playing Charlie. Um, uh, and yeah, I forgot we'd used that thing. Did we use all the correct things for all of the... Uh, yeah. Yes, they're all there. Well, I, I mean, I, yes, I probably insisted upon that. So, yes. <laughs> Ticking the fan-pleasing uh, button. Yes, but I would be very excited about that. Uh, yes, and, and of course, Alan Barnes wrote to the Eighth Doctor one, and he, he was very, uh, well, instrumental in sort of expanding and creating the Eighth Doctor um, era, really, which is so... You know, belongs to Big Finish more than anything, many other, any other Doctor really. So, uh, you know, I think it was the obvious thing to do. And uh, Michael Maloney was the supporting actor in that one, which was really 
great. I was very pleased to uh, have an opportunity to, to work with him. Uh, and, and he was great, of course. And I think he enjoyed it too. So, yeah. Very much so. And I think that the guest voices you got in are just, they all work perfectly. I think you listen to, you cannot imagine anyone else playing the parts when you listen to them now. I mean, it's just, they've made the parts their own, I think. Yeah, I think it all worked out very well, actually. Um, I mean, a lot of the, the voices I cast were people I'd worked with before. I mean, like Trevor Littledale did the uh, the Vengeance of the Stones one with um, Richard Franklin, which was a nice a nice pairing. Um, Ian Booker was in the Seventh Doctor one, wasn't he? I think, I can't even remember. Was he the ship's captain in that? Was something like that? It's pretty much everything in it, yes. Ian's just brilliant. Yes, He's got such a brilliant well, yeah. voice. Yes, Ian's great. And uh, so that was nice to put him with Sophie. Um, yeah, so we, we yeah we had some nice uh, well Michael Cochran in the in the last one, uh, and that was the only one we had three actors in it because Nick also played the the strange aliens which I can't remember the name the Crevix the Crevix I listened to name, this two days ago that's how I remember <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that was that was good to have um, Michael uh, in it as well and Michael weirdly was playing. Uh, the older version of the character that Tam Williams plays in the first Doctor one, uh, and Michael is actually Tam's stepfather because uh, he's um, married to Tam's mother. So yeah, that is a really nice. I didn't know that. Brilliant, brilliant oh, bit of trivia. New facts, new facts, <laughs> fabulous. Yeah. And I think you know the real joy was you know hearing Catherine come in when I think I was genuinely surprised that she'd come in and done it because you think oh his Doctor was fairly recent to her on her CV at that point, but there she is. And of course, sort of paved the way for her doing Big Finish in the very near future after that. Yes, I mean, we had a conversation about that. I mean, um, yeah, I was delighted that she said yes to do it. And um, uh, and, she, and, and as it turned out, uh, Duncan Wisby was the supporting uh, actor in that particular one, who I'd, again, had worked with Duncan before, and he's very sort of versatile and do lots of different voices. And then it turned out that Duncan and Catherine had been at drama school together and so they knew each other which is amazing i, mean, I remember when she said because she arrived before duncan did and she sat down and that was the first time she was seeing who the uh the other cast was. and she said she said duncan wisby she said is that duncan and i thought well there can't be that many duncan wisby's uh you know around with a name like that and uh, i said well yes i think it probably is and so yeah they had a little reunion which was lovely you know and i think it helped break the ice a little bit because of course she didn't know us that was the first time she came along and uh but i think even then i said well you know obviously we would love at some point to be doing uh, you know, Doctor Who's with you and David, and, and she said, well, I'm, "I'm up for that." She said, I, "I love working with David." She said, and the last thing she told me as she was leaving, she said, "Oh, she said, if you do them with David, uh, yes, let me know." She said, yeah. <laughs> and the rest is history, and it happened. Yeah, so yep. there we go. <laughs> yep. When it all came together, Matt Fitton took all these little elements and had them popped into the the different scripts. And then it really, it just works. It's just such a wonderful, subtle little things that all come together and they sort of coagulate in a lovely, natural way. It doesn't feel over the top. It's just a nice elements that just sort of making sure people yeah. stay alive to meet and don't destroy the computer and Babel Sphere and all these little the elements, they just come together beautifully and dovetail. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Matt Fitton, yes, because he had... A, a, a terribly difficult job or so it seemed and and it wasn't all 
I don't think, I think he came on board after some of the early ones had already started being written. So uh, we were sort of giving him a, this is, you've got to make these work. <laughs> you've got to fit in the, the elements that we are in these uh, early stories. I think he was able to make suggestions or requests for some of the later ones. Could you make this the item that they need to keep or whatever, you know, or do something with? Um, so there was some feedback and back and forth. Uh, you know, between at least some of the writers. But yes, he did an incredible job uh, of making it all fit in and and, uh, and sounding like it was very sort of um, planned and cohesive. Uh, I mean, it's a good, I probably, th that story was amazing because it was like a proper story in itself. It wasn't just, I think you could still listen to that on its own and enjoy it. Because uh, I think that was something I said to him. I said, this can't just be a, a wrap up of the previous 10 stories it's got to work on its own and he, he did exactly that but gosh it was a uh you know a, a difficult brief i think to have given any writer and that was the first time i'd worked with matt and i thought he did an amazing job of it i was very pleased with it yeah <laughs> and i do think that uh, the character of alice watson who's performed by jenna is a clara splinter of course yeah that was weird i mean with the trouble is that again you see i think we weren't sure we were going to get uh, Jenna to do it, you know. Uh, so we couldn't write it for Clara. Um, so I think we we had to play it safe at the writing point and write it so that it could have been narrated by somebody else, basically. Um, and then, of course, when we got, there was a sort of slight sort of, oh, we, we, we could have made this for Clara after all, you know, but, you know. But we did what we did, you know, and uh, and I think it works. And yes, seeing it as a cloud splinter is a very nice way of putting it, I think. So, yeah, <laughs> it works well. <laughs> yeah. So how do you look back on the whole thing now? Something I hope you're justifiably proud of. I think so. Yes, I think I'm, I think I am quite proud of it. And it was an enjoyable experience. And it felt like an achievement, you know, to do encapsulate the whole of 50 years of Doctor Who in, in those 11 releases. Um, and I think, yeah, uh, you know, obviously the, the, you know, we didn't get Matt Smith. Um, the slight, slight little reservations, but despite all that, I think it works extremely well, uh, and it's an enjoyable listen, and lots of different styles of stories and everything, which is exactly what it should, because that's what Doctor Who is like, isn't it? Really? So, yeah, yeah, I'm very pleased to have done it. Yeah, I've just had a thought. There could have been a tenth anniversary special edition reissue by getting Jake Dudman <laughs> to do all the Matt Smith bits. Oh, well, Damn it. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, maybe we'll do that for the next time. <laughs> the next yeah, we'll do. Yeah, we'll do that for the seventieth anniversary. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, brilliant, John. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Big thanks to John for taking time out of his busy big finish day. Yes. To have a wee natter with us there. Thank you, John. So, much appreciated. Yeah. First story: Hunters of Earth by yes. Nigel Robinson, featuring the first Doctor and Susan set before an unearthly child. Yes, I really like this one. Susan, Caroline is phenomenal. The stuff, the the quality of the work that she's done for Big Finish since she started working for them has just been amazing. She's been given so much more to do than she ever was in television and she's absolutely risen to it. She's been superb and she's brilliant in this one. Tam Williams being the guest voice in this one, he plays the part of Cedric. So there's lots of scenes for Susan and Cedric together 
he's another boy at the school, essentially, listeners. We're not. We're going to be slight on plot details here because we don't want to spoil them. And I really liked. I listened to this one twice actually in 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 revising because it was just really nice just to, you know, fifty odd years later, and Carol did a perfect job of bringing Susan back. There was lots of chat about Bob Dylan that they go and buy a Bob Dylan LP. Um, the nub of the bulk of the story is radio signals making teenagers and kids act up and go weird. That's the, that's the thumbnail plot sort of description. And um and they get involved in all sorts of stuff and the doctor gets involved because there's a chap at Susan, a teacher at Susan's school who's related to Cedric. And there's some there's a funny bit. Um one thing that sort of links all the episodes is that each doctor at some point gets a message from the eleventh doctor because obviously Matt was the incumbent at this point. And the message that he gets in this one, it's sort of it's a letter read out um by a pirate radio DJ, <laughs> which has a couple of anachronistic references to like Loon Pants and um and Woodstock as well as the Beatles and all that sort of thing. It's very, very funny. You can imagine Matt's doctor writing it. So that was obviously making the Doctor and Susan aware of something that they had to get done in this story and it was um that was that was really interesting. The other anachronistic reference that made me smile was the reference to Magpie Electricals, the first ah. new series proper mention in something produced by Big Finish, but not quite produced by Big Finish with Audio Go. Interesting. That's quite good. I don't remember that, but that's fair. Probably, I, I probably, I'm sure I would have heard that. No, that's cool. And of course, the one good thing that I really liked about it was that you know we had Carol, because obviously she'd done some Companion Chronicles and she obviously did some brilliant stuff in the, the early adventures. So um, it was just good to sort of, and she, because she knew Bill, she knew Bill Hartnell. It's nice to have her doing the voice, and the Doctor and Susan's relationship was captured perfectly. As Kenny says, it's before on an earthly child. You really get that idea of Susan being out of her time and place, and the friendship with Cedric is really quite touching. It was it was really 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 affecting. Yeah, I liked this one a lot. Same, I really enjoyed it. Nigel Robinson, obviously, having done the novelisation for Edge of Destruction and, and and what like he knows Doctor Who inside out. We've already talked about them in the, the birthright episode that we've done so safe pair of hands absolutely yeah absolutely agreed I think Nigel of course he did the big finish uh, adaptation of the Masters of Luxor by Anthony Coburn and uh, which is very topical because as we speak listeners um, as we record this there's been quite a lot of fuss in the socials the last couple of days because the BBC have announced obviously that lots of old Doctor Who's going to be on the iPlayer but that first opening serial isn't because of reasons, um, and we shall say no more at this time. Yes. Members of the Coburn family, etc. In my notes here of the first one, I've written Susan's Premonition, but I can't remember what Susan's Premonition was because I listened to this three weeks ago. <laughs> what was Susan's Premonition, listeners, write and let me know. Yeah. Story two, The Shadow of Death by... Well, no, it's Shadow of Death. It's not the definitive article. Yes. By Simon Guerrier with the second Doctor, Jamie and Zoe, and performed by the fantastic as ever, fantastic, brilliant Fraser Hines. And who's the guest voice on that one? It's Evie Donny. Of course. It's the, tar- it's the TARDIS knocked off course by a pulsar in a planet of the ruined city and the sorts of earthquakes and temporal shifts going on. And it's one of those ones where you realise eventually that time is playing at different speeds in different places and it's quite interesting. For a Gourier one, I'm going to be honest, I thought it was not his strongest. Some of the ideas were a little generic. I didn't think that it was the best use of the guest voice but not but not by any stretch the worst in, in this range. We're going to be mildly critical listeners, it's ten years after the event, I'm sure people can handle it. But Fraser was outstanding. Fraser's obviously played the second Doctor tons for Big Finish so it was, it was quite nice being sort of reminded that he could do that. Yeah. And for me, it absolutely fits that second Doctor mode kind of story for that series for season six, where you're like you're in the future. There's 
space people, uh, for want of a term. Yeah. And just that sort of fits in that kind of seeds of death kind of world. Yeah. Uh huh. And Evie's very good because our character Sophie, it turns out, because we get the the Doctor gets a message from the Eleventh Doctor, sort of an image of him appears, and this, and then um, a piece of paper. It sort of appears in Madeira, I seem to remember. That was the day I was I got listened to the listen to that listeners of Boys Ref was I got a last minute call to get into SWG three to do what we term in the trade a crossload, which is when a band can't get into the venue that they're playing at, so they go somewhere else and you take all their stuff out of their truck and it gets put into a smaller truck that can get into the venue. So I had to rush down to SWG three and do that and I can't remember what the band were called. Anyway, so yeah, I was listening to that in a hurry. Yeah, it turns out for that one that the Sophie's research is important and that's the the sort of way that it ties into the ongoing narrative. The, there's there's a revelation, is it what they call the quiet ones, mm-hmm. who are kind of behind it all. And there's a really interesting bit, which I, I, I like towards the end when it's sort of, um it gets a bit timey-wimey, when because everything's going on at different speeds, it turns out that while Jamie and Zoe were doing this in this room or whatever, the Doctor had been there for years. And the Doctor, when Jamie sort of confronts him about this, is a little evasive about it and doesn't seem to want to admit it. And, and you sort of think... That's very trouting though, isn't it? Does that, well, he, well, he has that slippery quality. I don't think it's the sort of thing they would have done on television at the time, but it's 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 such a nice conceptual idea that, you know, there's a sort of vague hint that he maybe looks a little bit older than he was the last time Jamie saw him and mm. stuff. And that's really, really good. In the 50th anniversary, when Stephen Moffat was at the helm, you would need a bit of time away, mate. That was, that was one thing that kind of stuck in my head from listening to it was just that bit was really quite effective it's like oh yeah summed up the the conceit about the time moving in different in different speeds in various parts of the city and all that very well because there's there's a point near the start when they they're looking out the window of the base and they, they see what what looks like some people standing still taking a photograph but of course they're those people are just moving very very slowly in comparison to the speed that jamie and zoe are at inside the, the base and all that listeners we're summarizing this enormously and cutting out lots of details but you know if you listen to them and these stories are always always going on sale at bf they're quite cheap as it is at the moment um you would get the gist i like this one it wasn't my favorite it wasn't my least favorite by any stretch but it wasn't it wasn't my favorite Excellent. Oh, I enjoyed it. I think yeah. it's, oh, I definitely if it's it. written by Simon and you've got Fraser yeah. performing it, you're on to a winner. Guru's a good guy. Like I love he's another one who's done some brilliant work on like Daily Adventures and the Companion Chronicles and listeners honestly, if you see that Gurrier has written a big finish, you know you you know you're not gonna be disappointed. I would recommend the Companion Chronicles and Daily Adventures he's done unconditionally. Big fan. Brilliant. Now story three. Yes. Vengeance written, of the Stones. Written by a friend of ours. So. <laughs> yes, but also, Dave, it's Vengeance of the Stones by Andrew Smith. Yes. Now, this one has a prequel. It's Ooh. a short trip right. by Julian Richards, and it's called Foreshadowing. And Andy spoke to my good self about it a wee while back on Pieces of Eighth, as it's there is an Eighth Doctor element to the prequel. So... Here's a little bit from Andy chatting about the story. Hello, Kenny. I am, let me introduce myself to you. I'm Andrew Smith, and I uh, am a writer, and I've written for Doctor Who. I wrote for TV's Doctor Who, Tom Baker, back in 1980, and written quite a few for Big Finish now. Yes, you wrote uh, Vengeance of the Stones. Oh my, yes, I did. Yeah, way back. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the second thing I wrote for Big Finish, maybe the, or the third. Yeah. Second, I think. I think. 2012 yeah. for recording in 2013. And this, of course, yeah, was... Yeah, it was done, of course, it was done for the Destiny of the Doctors series to mark the 50th anniversary 
he says as we as we're coming up to the the 60th anniversary next year. Blimey, scary, isn't it? So mm. this was a a wee surprise for you when I mentioned it to you. Yeah, I didn't know about it. Yeah, kind of a a, a prequel to Dungeons of the Stones. So yeah, when you mentioned it, I thought, oh, I, I'd not heard of this. And so I went and had a listen, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was re- really nice, actually. You know, it's this story that's set immediately before the events of Vengeance of the Stones. So the the fighter from Aria of Lossiemouth has disappeared. That's the opening event in Vengeance of the Stones. And here we have this fledgling Mike Yates, Lieutenant Mike Yates, at Aria of Lossiemouth on the cusp of getting involved in the investigation into that that missing fighter jet but he's got something else he has to deal with in the meantime and it's uh yeah it's a lovely story lovely interaction written by uh, julian richards yeah so there's some really nice there's some nice character stuff it's i think by, it's by his own admission he said there's not a huge amount happening story-wise but it's very much a character piece and i think it it feels very consistent with what you had yeah i think it fits right in yeah, and, and you know, and sets up stones very nicely. But but there's a kind of playfulness as well, because of course the Eighth Doctor, he knows Mike, obviously. And as soon as there's mention of the, the, the missing fighter jet, he knows exactly when they are as well. That it is just before the, event, the events of that story when the Doctor was the third Doctor. I particularly like the fact that if you didn't know, as I didn't when I first listened to it, just who the Lieutenant is, and then you sort of the clues are all there. The doctor obviously recognizes them, and it just builds up so nicely. And then when there's the real, it's like, of course. But unfortunately, I'd spoiled that for you. Yeah. Oh, that would have that would have been so lovely, you know. So I've got into it not knowing, you know. But uh, but uh, no, I, I I yeah, I just really enjoyed it. And then I could see as I as I listened to, it, I thought it would be upfront that this is Mike, but it but it's not. Yeah, I think it'd be a lovely reveal for someone coming to the story who doesn't know that. Oh no, a nice wee gem that just, I think the fact you've got a smile on your face, that says it all really. (laughs) Yeah, no, it really made me smile listening listening to it yesterday. And it's, yeah, it's a a lovely companion piece or Vengeance of the Stones is a companion piece to foreshadowing, whichever way you look at it. And um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was that, and it took me back. So I've not listened. I've not listened to Vengeance of the Stones for a long time. I'll, I'll maybe have to go and have a little cheeky, cause it's cheeky listen again because I, I don't re-listen to myself very much. Uh, but yeah, I might have to give that one another listen. It's been it's been so long. I've probably forgotten most of the story myself. Yeah, well, Easter Quarterly Stone Circle, and once visited by Peter Davison, as we've discussed before. But yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. People don't know it's around these stone circles that you find in the northeast of Scotland that are called recumbent stone circles because they have these recumbent stone stones on their side and no one really knows what the purpose of the recumbent stones is and that's because I, I, I've holidayed up in that part of Scotland an awful lot uh, both as a little boy and, and with my family in later years and um, uh, and I partly wrote it sitting in a couple of those stone circles. Um, yeah, so bring bring back happy memories actually that the I mean, it's an area of the country I love, and it, uh, it's a story I have affection for as well, because it's, yeah, it's set in that part of the country that I love. Yeah, I mean, it's a good job that they weren't ogre, they're just normal stones, but you visited them in real life, but whether they're ogre or not in Vengeance of the Stones, people need to buy it and find out. Yeah, there's something going on with those stones, but yeah, have a, have a listen.
plug plug. And listen to, and listen to foreshadowing as as well. Definitely. <laughs> Andy, thanks so much. Cheers, Kenny. All the best, mate. Cheers. And thanks to Andy from about two and a bit years ago. I've just checked and I don't own that, so I'm going to have to find out how much foreshadowing two ninety nine, I'll guess, from BF and see about getting a hold of it. So this one was a particularly exciting one, I yes. have to admit, for me, because the location of this, the Easter of Worthy Stone Circle, right, is actually up in a place called Inverurie, and that's where I had my first job. Have so you have you been to the site? Have you I have. It? How long would it take us to drive there? It would take us about th- two and a half to three hours, oh, it's and it's really dark as well. So we kind of ten pointless. past nine now on a Tuesday night. We're not going to go now, are we? No, we'll, no. we'll save it for we'll another time. We'll, we'll think do it for a doctor road trip. Maybe maybe one Sunday morning we'll go. Yeah. So yeah, this one's exciting for you. But the other great thing about the Easter Quarties Stone Circle is that it's part of a a Stone Circle Trail in right. Grampian or the, the, the Aberdeenshire area and this was opened back in March 1995 by a popular actor who appeared in television who presented a programme on astrology and because obviously Stone Circle's time with astrology of course and this was the Wednesday before I finished my job so that I was in Inverurie of course the actor who came along was Peter Davison yes, yes that, and it was your sort of um, it was your goodbye treat wasn't it to it was yes, so. yes I'm now reading the summary of the foreshadowing short trip on the BF website and I'm like ooh yeah so um yeah, I may have to purchase that the next time. There's a, there's a, it's only two ninety nine. Released August two thousand and fifteen, part yep. series five. Mm-hmm. So I was, I think at that point I was picking and choosing with my short trips. Yeah, I wasn't buying everything. I think I've only read one subscription. But we should probably talk about the story. Yes. So performed in the main by Richard Franklin as Lieutenant Mike Yates. Yep. With a guest voice from. The superb Trevor Littledale. Yeah, I like this one a lot, and I'm not just saying this because because uh, our mate wrote it. It's probably the only one in the the sequence of eleven stories that does a bit of a continuity implant. The sort of conceit is here that there's stuff going on in the north of Scotland. An aeroplane goes missing. Unit come up to investigate, and Lieutenant Mike Yates is the soldier who's kind of there when it's going on, and he meets the doctor and the brigadier. There's a there's a real sort of nice warmth to the way Richard reads the um the part where the doctor and the brig meet Mike for the first time because it's a nice bit when Mike sort of sees the doctor and says something like he liked him I liked him instantly something like that and that that was really nice you really got the sense that because it was in the first person and because it was you know it was Richard playing Mike that worked really really well obviously because it's Andrew all the place names are, are right and you know I'm sure all the geography is correct yes are we Lossiemouths in there all these um, things yep. because I have memories of us going up to a caravan near Lossiemouth when I was very young and waving to servicemen hanging out of helicopters and yep. all that sort of stuff when I, when I was like literally three or something <laughs> um, I was amused that there was a character called Davy Ross yes <laughs> that, was, that, that was a little boy that sort of helps the, the doctor and stuff he, fi- he finds the the kind of the helmet from the missing airplane that was yeah. quite good and I think this is the one when the doctor and and, and it's Johnsy obviously it's the third doctor he gets a phone call from Matt doesn't he that's right yep yeah. I remember that being quite funny and the doctor sort of being Johnsy's doctor being slightly exasperated with him and it's all to do with aliens and recumbent stones and you know all that sort of stuff and what's the what does the official synopsis sort of read for it Two RAF fighter jets are on a training flight over northeast Scotland when one of them is plucked from the air and promptly disappears. Unit are called in and the Doctor and Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart are soon in the scene. 
they enlist the help of a local military officer, a young lieutenant yeah. by the name of Mike. Yeah, Hint. I was hoping it might give us a bit more detail the aliens, but not to worry, because again, um, I listened to it a couple of weeks ago now, my notes aren't completely, yeah. <laughs> completely thorough, but I liked this one a lot. It was, um, a word I like to use, it felt very authentic, it was quite easy to imagine this as a sort of um, season 7B type story. Even though I think, am I right in thinking it mildly contradicted Eye of the Giant by Christopher Correct. Bruce? Yeah. That was one thing I kind of thought about because I remember really, really liking that book when I first yep. read it. So it was kind of, oh well, I suppose it just affects the time war, isn't it? It is. Because in that <laughs> one you've got uh, Benton and Yates are both sergeants and only one of them get promoted and yeah. and Benton says, nah, I'm just, a, it's, that's too much. I mean, that's too much thinking. You go for it. You yeah. have it. Because that's the way the military works. Is it? I don't no. know. But I mean, that's <laughs> like in that. I, I read Eye of the Giant probably when it came out, what, 1994 and 1995 yeah. or something, so I don't remember it too clearly. Um, but, you know, I like this one. A wee bit talky towards the end, but, you know, you're always going to get that when it gets to exposition, but it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed um, it. Richard Franklin did a fantastic brigadier voice, it must be said. Yes, absolutely. Very, yeah, very and, good. Um, and it was nice, obviously, with it. It's. As I said, when Carol doing the voice of the first Doctor or Fraser doing the voice of the second Doctor, it's nice when you've got actors, you can tell when they're, that they're enjoying doing yeah. the voices for their friends. It works really, really well. Yeah. Now, talking of enjoying doing the voices of uh, their co-star, Babel Sphere by Jonathan Morris, which has got the fourth Doctor and the second Romana, and it's read by Lala Ward. Yes. I always find that must be really good fun for Lala to be able to let rip and uh, do her best Tom, or her yeah. worst Tom. Obviously, given their personal history, there's lots of questions you could probably ask Lala about, um, you know, what it felt like to <laughs> to, have, to have to give voice to her ex-husband. I suppose she does a very good job. I like this one a lot. Hold that thought, Dave. Let's hear from the writer. Hi, I'm Jonathan Morris, and I wrote uh, Doctor Who Babblesphere. Not to be pronounced Babblesphere, as several people do. It's about talking and uh, babble, and it's, it's trivial talking, particularly sort of um, nonsensical and um, pointless talking. Uh, so yeah, it's babble because yes. it's um, that's uh, that's Dave and I told off. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, this must have been an exciting commission in a way to be part of the fiftieth celebrations in a as part of a as a part work collect and build audio. Uh, I'm casting my mind back then. This must be over 10 years ago. This is the uh, 50th, wasn't it? I can't remember how it came about. <laughs> I'm assuming uh, John Ainsworth or Michael Stevens or someone was involved who asked me to do it. And it was probably one of those two. And like a lot of these things, you sort of, you're told you've got one or two things to include. And then it's all going to be sorted out by. I assume it was Matt Fitton. <laughs> it's not only Matt Fitton or Justin Richards in the final story where it all comes together. So I think there was an object or something which had to be um, destroyed or recovered at the end of it. And of course, my story. The reason I'm a bit vague is partly because it was 10 years ago, but also that part of the story changed back and forth a bit and uh, was rewritten by other hands, I think. So I can't remember what it was actually, what, the, what it, we finally ended up with. Oh, a computer drive with the the main computer, computer drive. That's it. Oh yes, the um, the evil intelligence gets stuck on the computer drive, doesn't it? Yes, you see. Yep. I, I, I have listened to it. <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> yeah, it must have been a, you know, a delight for you getting to 
do something that Lala's going to perform and knowing she's going to do her Tom impression. Obviously, you'd had that in Companion Chronicles previously, but it was a new format to work with as well. Yes, it was slightly different from the Companion Chronicles. They wanted it to be more, you know, like a talking book. It was, you know, third person, limited, whatever. And I, I'm pretty sure they'd asked me because I'd done things like, you know, Festival of Death and... Um, the beautiful people had done, which was a very Tom and Lala thing as well. And so I'd got a bit of a, um, not typecast, but I'd become a, a bit of a reputation of being that something that I was good at and enjoyed doing. And um, so I, I was delighted. I felt a bit like I was sort of, there's a danger certainly that I was repeating myself because I was sort of, it, it was such a sort of a comfort zone project, you know. Um, but I know that what I, some things normally have they did they did make me work so it wasn't entirely you know uh, plain sailing I suppose in many many ways we were taking a, a cynical look at Twitter back then and then when you look at how things have developed in the decades since it's quite uncanny really yeah I mean even when I wrote this Twitter Twitter had been going for about four or five years I think and the reason I know that is like I think about two years before I submitted the same idea as a comic strip to Doctor Who magazine where you know the the first page was someone waking up and, and on tweeting basically going had a great dream rest resting for the win exclamation mark breakfast time then he's like talk takes a photo of his breakfast great breakfast loved it and all the other people going sort of commenting on his breakfast going great sausages and all that stuff utter and then obviously his his chip in his brain overloads and he's dead end of page one so this was originally pictures of comic strip and i know um i think it was probably thomas Pillsbury going it's not very topical is it <laughs> you know twitter was three years ago it's a bit out of date now johnny so how how little tom knew that it would remain it would remain um topical you know five years later whatever two years later and it remains topical now because people thought that, you know, Facebook and Twitter were trivial. But now we have TikTok, which is even more, you know, even more vacuous. Yeah. You know, where it's like people just going, here I am at a horrid resort, here's my dance. And you go, Whoa. where it's just like one line and a bit of music. You know, it's like it's got even more fatuous, I think is a good word for it. Definitely. I also like the comments that um, in there about removing moderators and think, hmm, slightly prescient of what Elon has done since buying them. Yes, I mean, um, I'm thinking about so the, the moderators, correct me if I'm wrong, the moderators go insane and they sort of coagulate into this one intelligence that's yep. um, being, being sort of tortured by being the job of a moderator, which just reflected, you know, by that point, I've been on in the, um, on various forms of the internet for about 15, 20 years, you know, from Usenet to Yahoo groups to other forums and stuff. And you would see, you know, the moderators would start off as these sort of nice, polite people. And within about two years, they'd become Napoleon because <laughs> the power's gone to their head. And then another two years, and they're just sort of, they've been, they've been driven mad by it because it is listening to people just sharing stupidity or sharing thought, thoughtlessness, you know, um, unconsidered opinions. 
does your head in, you know. And um, so yeah, I think um, that was a good aspect of it. And also, the story has um, the people who've sort of sworn off social media. One of the things which is quite, I think, interesting about the story is I, the first version of it, I was quite like the Sunmakers, in that it was a sort of a world of grey corridors and everyone wearing grey overalls and having quite boring lives and the rebels were just teenagers and the note came back going that's really boring Johnny can you come up with something more imaginative so I changed the, the world now becomes this sort of Louis the 16th decaying sort of palace um, where the robots are, hang, are hanging from the ceiling and sort of wearing about with some bizarre name I forgot what the name was but they um, exactly I can't even pronounce it um, and uh, the, where the, the rebels, the, the, the are old, old, lady, old ladies, basically, you know, because they were the early adopters. They, they they got the gossip out of their system, and they realised it was that you know it was dangerous and it wasn't for them. So it sort of it ended up turning the sort of whole cliched Doctor Who world of grey corridors and teenage rebels, and going okay, they're lavish corridors and it's old age old people as levels, which I think helped it, helped it a lot, really. I think that the sort of, because the story is very traditional, it is, you know, people getting split up, escaping, getting captured, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and the Doctor and Ramona discovering, you know, dead bodies and trying to work out what happened to them. So I think that helped sort of elevate it a little bit. But also, it wasn't really one of those things where you're trying to come up with an exciting original story because it's a comedy and what you're using doing is going it's a vehicle for jokes or um, or humorous observations or whatever um, and so you don't want the plot to be that complicated because that's you want the attention to be on on the jokes really and you need a nice sort of solid structure to stick on and it works wonderfully for it and I think there's some fantastic stuff just like even like the whole jokes about the sonic screwdrivers with the oh can i borrow your one romana and it's like oh it's on charge in the tardis and the doctor's like oh i've not got mine i've left it i was fixing canine and i've left it in the tardis on recharge as well i think the stuff like that is just you can just so imagine tom and lala doing it it just perfectly captures them i think that's just one of those moments where where you i've written myself under a corner going they're stuck in a cell and normally they would get out straight away because of the sonic screwdriver so you just go Oh, neither of them have one because they both assume the other one would have brought it along. So yeah, sometimes humour is quite a good way of having an entertaining way out of a, a plot problem, should we say. And also, so it's I find writing humour becomes much more of a it's much more disciplined really because sometimes when you're writing, you can have like eight or nine versions of a scene or a line or whatever, and you sort of you sort of go, what is that nice? What flows best? What um, what looks like good writing without being too trying to be good writing? What is the quickest? What gets the point quicker? But if you're trying to be funny, you've got the discipline of going, right, every line has to be punchy, it has to be a joke, it has to be a setup, something. Um, and he needs that rhythm and stuff. So that imposes a whole extra level of discipline over certainly writing the dialogue, but in this, it's all narrated so it's all that whole thing so yeah it becomes much more thought through much more heavily rewritten i think 
because I'm sure you know I remember having things like the the ghost of Douglas Adams at my shoulder at one shoulder and the ghost of PG Woodhouse at the other making sure going be a better writer Johnny try harder work harder <laughs> I suppose looking back on it now a decade on you've had a lot of word performing your work and it's part of a celebration so there must have been sort of a real thrill knowing that you know one of your childhood heroes here she is performing your work and and obviously having a great time with it yes i think um the fact that she's enjoying it the lad is enjoying the performance of it makes it so much better you know um she's got a great sort of comic timing she's got sort of that sort of lightness of touch i mean where you can tell that she's sort of read it and oh actually i remember that the I don't think I wasn't at the recording, but um, someone told me that uh, she'd sort of been reading it aloud in bed because Richard Dawkins was just laughing his head off at it and just finding it very, very amusing. <laughs> because Richard Dawkins is like, even then, I think, was Mr. Mr. Social Media. And so he was getting getting all of the, um, the, the gags, even if he wasn't a Doctor Who person. So yeah, the fact that you know, that you know, and just imagine Lana Ward in bed with Richard Dawkins, look both sort of with the spectacles, and she's got the scripts and she's reading it out. That that's how I imagine it. How I imagine it was done. So yeah, it, so having that sort of enthusiasm of knowing that the person enjoyed it, I think you can tell sometimes. I mean, sometimes sometimes actors can be having a hell of a time and it still sounds you know hilarious but um i think uh you get that sort of warmth coming through i think which is which is delightful definitely does particularly with the old lady scenes when she's finding their characters i think she's having a ball with that part yes yeah i'm i'm, I'm gonna be good i haven't actually listened to it since it came out <laughs> because uh even listening to other people's stuff is a bit of a busman's holiday for me and also one of the weird things is that before something comes out i tend to be so excited by my own stuff that i read the scripts over and over again so by the time it had come out i was bored of it because I'd, <laughs> I'd written it you know i'd written it at least three times and i'd read it back about four or five times to remind myself what, what it was so um that's my excuse for not listening to it a lot. I've got it on the shelf up there. It's at my mum's somewhere. Yeah, there's one other thing I can add, which I do remember, which is um, the final bit uh, where the Doctor is... The Doctor and Monarch decide to overload the computer by, with Doctor Who trivia and stuff, where um, I think they sort of... The Doctor's doing his top ten monsters and stuff, which I had great fun with. But um, originally, the idea behind these things is was that the um, the 11th Doctor, Matt Smith, was flitting back and forth through his incarnations. And so the idea was with that scene that Matt Smith would turn up and he'd be the one adding the adding the final continuity reference that would, that would blow the machine up. So I'm slightly, I'm always thinking, oh, I wish they got Matt Smith to do that. I mean, it was, you know, it was on and off, on and off. And you don't miss it. But I miss it because I wrote that bit, and um, I, I also wrote um, an introduction for Matt Smith to do it, uh, which I've, I don't know if I've published anywhere. Because, um, but it's um, it's Matt Smith going, all right, 
Stop what you're doing and pay attention. No, put the phone down. Stop looking at the internet. Pay attention to me. I know what you're doing. You're commenting on this already, aren't you? You're commenting on social media about what I'm saying. Or stop and listen. I'm going to tell you a st- story now about what happened to me when I was, when I was had the hat and the scarf and I travelled around with, I think one of the girls from ABBA. <laughs> so I love that bit, and again, that, that's because I can sort of quote that bit. I think that, that's um, that was very close to my heart, but it, unfortunately, that didn't get through. Never mind. Dear Jake Dudman. <laughs> that would work. Yes. He was only five years old then. He couldn't do it. <laughs> Don't. It's scary. Perfect. Thank you for that. Johnny is brilliant. And thanks again for taking the time to have a quick chat. So we've heard from Johnny. What do you think of Babel Sphere, Dave? It's very Johnny. It's very clever. It's very funny. He's. We've talked before about how Johnny's good at doing cover versions. So this is his cover version of a a Douglas Adams story, essentially. The scenes where the Doctor and Romana first meet the robot are very, very funny. You can imagine that being played out just exactly on television as it, you know, as it's sort of written. And this is basically Johnny's story about compulsory Twitter. Yes. What if Twitter, and, you know, and it's interesting listening to it 10 years after it was written because, or, or released, because it's quite, the way Twitter's gone in recent months and the way that social media has sort of evolved over the 10 years very interesting to compare and contrast with what Johnny was saying about it 10 years ago because basically you're not in this story you're not allowed to have private thoughts everything that you think or feel has to be shared online and it's obviously it's Johnny extrapolating and being satirical about the way that some people were starting to use social media back in the point I liked this a lot it, it felt very very authentic as you'd sort of expect you know you can imagine on telly a cast of brilliant British character actresses playing the, the older women with broken implants you can imagine the, the electrocuted skeletons being shot quite moodily and maybe being a cliffhanger reveal there's a bit <laughs> it's a very funny very postmodern bit when Romana talks about some of the technology being terribly interactive which is obviously <laughs> a reference to the, the prime computer jokes clever prime um yeah, I like this one. And obviously, Matt's doctor pops up, um, asking him not to destroy the big computer that's in charge of it all because it's going to be important. And there's a funny bit when they're sort of um, confusing the computer by listing the top fives, which I was quite amused at as I walked back up from B and M at Linwood back up to my mum's house as I was listening <laughs> to this one. Yeah, I like this one a lot. What did you think? Really enjoyed it. I mean, I just Johnny's one of my favourite writers. Mm-hmm. Season seventeen is one of my favourite seasons. The Doctor and the second Romana are my favourite Doctor and Companion team of all time ever. Even shading the eighth Doctor and Lucy. Gasp! I know, but I just love this pairing and I could listen to them bantering all day and it's it's just perfect. It's absolutely perfect. As Johnny told us previously, he feels that he can sort of get into the style of other writers and he can we sort of mimic uh-huh. their style and their jokes things yeah. like that and their structures and for me it's, it's perfect I love it this was a good one because the balance between Lala and the guest voice in this one was Roger Parrott and they, there was lots of scenes of Romana with his character and he was like the main guest character so it, there was a, there was room for a lot of dialogue some of the other ones it didn't, didn't work quite as well and I'll talk about that when we get to them this one this one was probably technically the best I think I remember enjoying it a lot when I first listened to it. I got a feeling when I first listened to it, it was around about, I want to say towards the end of 2017 when I'd done the vast amount of my big finish catching up with the last previous two or three years and I was like, right, what have I not got to yet? 
Destiny the Doctor was probably on sale, so I thought, right, we'll get all, you know, buy them all. Um, so I liked it a lot. It's Johnny's just like he just nails it. I've I've waxed lyrical in the past about how good he is and the way he does it, and so I wouldn't I wouldn't labour the point. But this was this was a really really good one, and again, a lot of what he was saying was still relevant because you know social media still has such a hold over us. It does indeed. It does indeed. So let's move on. Fifth Doctor time now. Smoke and Mirrors by Steve Lyons, which was released in May 2013, with the Fifth Doctor, Tegan, Adric, and Nissa, and it's a bit of a celebrity historical. Yes, Harry Houdini. Some good, interesting stuff at the start of this one with it, when he plays a sort of fortune teller trick on everyone. And we see the Eleventh Doctor in a crystal ball, which is pretty cool. I'm going to be honest, this, this one left me a little dissatisfied. I felt a lot of the time Janet, because Janet Fielding, performing this one. And who played Harry Houdini? Tim Bickman. Not the same chap that played him in the Sixth Doctor story, I take it? No, it's not, because I think he had returned to America and they right. couldn't track him oh, down. that's a shame. That's a pity. And the Sixth um, Doctor Big Finish story also produced by John Ainsworth. But the Sixth Doctor Big Finish, Harry, Harry Houdini's War, I think it's called. That's the one. That's an excellent one. You should go and listen to that, folks, if you haven't. I, they were doing a... I see, I'm saying this now, as we say, as we record this, they were having a sale on, um, on Nicola Bryant stories the other day, so it might not still be reduced. <laughs> it might have been... I didn't think this one worked too well because there was too many scenes of Janet having to do the Doctor's voice talking to Houdini. Okay. I think it would have worked a lot better if Tegan had been paired up with Houdini and Janet could have just been Tegan. She does a fine Fifth Doctor voice, but I was really conscious of the fact that it didn't really... It wasn't making the best use of the format. I felt I'm being harsh, but I have to be harsh. I'm going to be completely... I think that's bad weight. <laughs> it's not going to be the worst thing when you say about anything. I did enjoy it. It was not a difficult listen. And that was another wander through Paisley and I was through my mum's at the start of the month. There's a good bit when Adric gets chased by a tiger. There's almost a point you think Houdini is going to be the master in disguise. Yeah. Of course, the master is involved. Nissa gets hypnotised again. It was a very season nineteen sort of story, but I just think the balance of the of the way it was put together was 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 wrong. There was too many points when like, you know, you were sort of going because if you if any, Tegan's such a strong character. You can imagine her being a bit spiky and having good banter with some with someone famous and confident like Harry Houdini and you know you can imagine them maybe hating each other and becoming friends you know that might have been a better arc for it um, the master almost felt a bit tokenistic to be honest I'm probably being harsh on it I think I enjoyed it more the first time I listened to it to be honest okay it could have been structured a bit better so that yeah I do like the when you've the, got the character the actor yeah. or the actress playing the regular part yeah. who are doing the chat so yeah. yes I mean I it's the sort of thing if it had been a full cast drama it would have been fine because you know Peter Davison would have been doing the, the Doctor obviously so I just felt it was it was one that was kind of let down from, that was, that's what let it down for me um, okay. but it's not bad there's some, lots and lots of good bits in it and um, you know the master being there with his sort of resonance with Tegan and Nyssa that's always going to add value so it, was, it wasn't bad Right Dave story six it's Trouble in Paradise by Nev Fountain with the Sixth Doctor and Perry. Now this is one that I think I bumped into Nev Fountain on The Strand once and I'm pretty sure this was one of, one of the stories that I'd just listened to remember at the time and I remember speaking to him and sort of saying hello I've just been listening to one of your Doctor Who stories and he laughed a little bit and I said that I think it was either, did he, I'm sure he's written another it could have been this I'm sure it was this one anyway I spoke to Nev Fountain once on, on London about some Doctor Who stuff he'd done for Big Finish and it was a Six Doctor one so it's most likely this was very good Nicola's Six Doctor was fantastic 
the one of the, the whole joys of this whole series is just hearing the regulars just playing the Doctor and I could I was laughing a lot as I listened to it because I could imagine Colin saying and reacting perfectly from from Nicola's delivery. The eleventh Doctor pops up at the start of this one, giving the Doctor and giving the sixth Doctor and Perry coordinates for an Omni paradox, which is something a bit of a MacGuffin that becomes sort of relevant at the end of it all. And they beat they basically as, as I think it says they meet Christopher Columbus, um, and it's interesting. There's another another celebrity historical right after the last one. And it's good because Perry gets a sort of info dump when she lists all the bad things that Christopher Columbus did. Yeah. And it's interesting, which makes you think about how some of these, how kind of airbrushed and photoshopped and smooth some of these celebrity celebrity historical episodes sometimes are. Yeah. You know, just to make things, you know, because obviously Winston Churchill is a very controversial figure now. I think maybe that was not so much the case in 2010 when he was in Margaret's Dalek story, for yeah. example. So this is quite an interesting one. It does that sort of very modern RTD style thing where it brings in a, a sort of anthropomorphic, you know, a humanist, a human version, <laughs> anthropomorphic, I can't say the word. Anthropomorphised. <laughs> you can't say it either. You, you make me trip up. <laughs> yes, space buffalo in, in the mode of the Jadun or, or what have you. And that was quite interesting. It gets a bit timey-wimey, you know, the tar, you know, the TARDIS lands in the boat, there's a period you think Perry might have drowned. And it's it basically sort of results in the paradoxical creation of what becomes the United States of America, <laughs> which was very, very funny. And, like, you know, the dog's sort of explaining to Perry that any time he goes to America, it feels a bit funny because it shouldn't really exist. <laughs> um, and she shouldn't really exist because, <clears throat> as a result, so it was a really, really clever one, very funny. Um, who was the guest voice in this one? This one is Cameron Stewart. Cameron playing Christopher Columbus, obviously, and he's excellent. He's very good, and it's a good balance of scenes with him and the Doctor and, and Perry. And while I was sort of critical of the fact Janet had to do a lot of the Doctor scenes with this one, I think Nicola's sixth Doctor was so good that it didn't really matter as much, but equally there was a, there was a bit more of a, a spread. I th- did he do the Space Buffalo as well? I, I think remember. he did, yeah. So I think he was, he was given a bit more to do. But I really liked this one. Um, a real highlight. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I think the the dialogue, as you said, Nicola absolutely steals it. I mean, she's absolutely got that the pomposity that the Sixth Doctor has. Yeah, the like rhythm, the overconfidence. Yeah, yeah, she. I mean, she gets his the beats and sort of intonation of how Colin would deliver the lines absolutely perfectly. This was really, really good. This is you know one of my favourites. Not my not my absolute favourite. Possibly my joint favourite. Excellent. Um, I remember this one. Where was I? Where was I working the day? Listening to this one, I remember a lot of walking. Was I at the was I at the exhibition centre that day? I might have been. I remember listening to some of it on the way home, some of it on the way in. Yeah. Anyway, no, I like this one a lot. Quite twisty turny. It put me in mind of some of the less out there Six Doctor Marvel comic strips at points. Um, you can imagine this appearing in DWM circa the middle of nineteen eighty six or nineteen eighty seven very yeah. very easily. It felt very the highest praise I always I can ever give for a Doctor Who story. It felt very very ear authentic because obviously they met George Stevenson and they met H.G. Wells so of course they're going to meet Christopher Columbus it does make it was sense. really really good I liked it a lot Nev, Nev is one of these guys I think he really should have written for the TV series but now yeah. he's one of the another one of these writers that understands how Doctor Who works fast and funny yeah. gets the jokes in there but can do yeah. the, the emotional stuff so absolutely yeah, it's I a agree. cracker definitely then of course we're on to Shockwave not the Decepticon. <laughs> what is it you demand, Megatron? Did you know that that voice was apparently based on David Warner? Really? 
according to Sill. Shockwave's the big guy that transforms into a gun listeners, which meant that's why he wasn't put on sale so much in Britain. Yeah, and um, he was the Decepticon who tried to take over from Megatron in the comics. He was the, yeah, in, in the cartoon series he stayed behind, he didn't come to Earth. Yeah, but, so he's um, millions of years old. Yeah. Anyway, this is a yes. story by James Swallow, or Jim, if you know him, uh, with the seventh Doctor Nace, and it's performed by Sophie Aldred with Ian Brooker. Yeah, I've got a few notes about this one. I like this a lot, obviously. All the chat at the start about Artron energy. Basically, there's a dying sun, and the Doctor and Ace end up in the last spaceship away from this planet that's trying to escape. Ace rescues a, a girl with red hair via teleport, and this girl turns She's part of a sort of cult that want everything to die, and she ends up sabotaging the spaceship and all that. And there's um, they're there for something called the Voice of Stone which obviously you won't be surprised to learn contains a message from Matt's doctor telling him that they need to save O1 who I think was the captain of the spaceship and this girl who Ace rescues she's called 9J and 9J ends up sacrificing herself at the end and it was actually quite affecting I listened to this one a week past on Saturday in my walk in and out from <laughs> doing a job for <laughs> Audio CP so that was fun I liked that one I liked this one a lot um, it felt I could it was another one where it wasn't difficult to picture it as a Cartmel JNT era TV story. What did you think? I really enjoyed it. I like the whole notion of you know having to ride a shockwave, things like that, to avoid yeah. all the the spatial temporal anomalies and the mm-hmm. problems that go with it. And the you know, the death cult is something that you probably wouldn't be able to do in Doctor Who and television, but I think in this audio it is very well done. Yeah. It was very adult. I think it's the most adult out of them all. Um, it could have been a new adventure yes, easily. That's exactly what I felt. You know, it felt a bit transity in a way, a bit you know, a bit Lucifer rising, you know, that sort of thing. It felt very of its again, the high praise. It was. It felt very authentic. I thought uh, <laughs> I didn't think much of Sophie's Sylvester impression <laughs> actually, given but, you know Sylvester's quite hard to do. You have to kind of go. Yes. I, I, you know he's. <laughs> I love him to death, but I was, I watched, Kerry very kindly gave me the the um the real time pictures DVD of the Seventh Doctor, um, Mythmakers the other week, and I was watching Sylvester's chat when I was making my tea one night last week, um, and listening to it, and I was trying to do his voice, and he's quite difficult. He's, I didn't think that Sophie got him too well. I'm oh. <laughs> going to be harsh. I think out of all the Doctor impressions of any of the actors in this, that was probably the weakest. <laughs> um, with no offence, Sophie, you know. God, how, how long did you work with him? How long have you done? You could have done a bit better than that. No. But, <laughs> but I like this well, one. Dave, we're Scottish guys yeah. and we can't do an impression, so know, Sophie's got no chance. I know, we've got I mean, you know, Or no chance, as we would say. I've been sort of like, you know, idolising him since 1987 and yeah. I kind of still struggle because he's, he's, such a, he's such a weird accent that he's got. And I'm not going to embarrass myself today by attempting to do a Sylvester impression at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> or am I? I don't know. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> um, but no, there's a lot more to it, obviously, than than, um, than Sophie's Sylvester voice. As you say, the whole threat of the shockwave. And you really had that sense of time running out. And and it felt, you know, as I've said already, it felt new, new adventure. It felt very authentic. And Sophie was tremendous, obviously. You know. Yep. And Ian Brooker as well. Uh-huh. Of course, I think Ian's one of those actors. Big Finish get in quite a lot. Yeah. And he also, I mean, the part of Rosam, he's brilliant in Embrace the Darkness. And I'm surprised they've never brought Rosam back or mm-hmm. another Rosam unit because I think it's such a great idea that robot. I picture it as being a bit like the Lost in Space robot, right, the movie version, sure. not the original TV. What's wrong with the original TV version? He's great. He's fantastic. But I just Will Robinson. I just picture him as being more like the fully functional uh, original Only. version, the way that right. it starts out. I see. Okay, that's fair. 
That's yeah. fair. But for me, Shockwave is fantastic. Jim Swallow, great writer, always knows what he's doing. Great sci-fi concepts in there, but not in a hard sci-fi way. It's presented in a good, fun way, yeah. and it builds up to a really nice climax. Yeah, and it was. I mean, it felt it felt really complete in the way, as I said, that you know, the nine J character being introduced, and then you know what happened with her. So yeah, it was um, it was good. You know, the story sort of ties into the overall one. The sort of MacGuffin in this one, of course, is the is the voice of stone, and who is the voice? It's obviously it's the eleventh Doctor and. And of course, the message is that the the instruction for the Doctor and Ace is to is to rescue the Captain, stop him from being killed. So, yeah, aye, a little uh, little. It was quite well integrated into the plot, as opposed to you know, at the start of Nev's one where he just rocks up straight away and you know sets it up. It was quite. It was nicer. You're sort of going right. When is the Eleventh Doctor going to pop up? And it was almost a surprise when he did. But aye, I like this one very much. Yep. And then, of course, next up. Enemy Aliens. Now, I'm so pleased about when this was first announced was the fact it was a BBC release which was featuring the Eighth Doctor and acknowledging Charlie Pollard as canonical of as an official BBC release and then it has the David Arnold theme as well. Of course, and this obviously was before Night of the Doctor was on TV. Yeah, I remember, I mean, as I say, I didn't listen to it at the time, but on my first listen, this was my favourite story in the whole thing. I don't know if it was this time, to be honest. I shall see no, I shall see no more at this point, because I don't want to underemphasise the fact that I absolutely loved it. It's basically just the 39 steps. <laughs> it really is. It's um, it's Alan Barnes doing a 39 steps pastiche with the Eighth Doctor and Charlie. Probably 50% 39 steps the book, 50% 39 steps every adaptation of it you've ever seen, but it's very, very funny. Very, very good. Charlie's amazing. And the good thing, of course, is that India had done uh, a companion chronicle already that one with the celestial toy maker I think is it Solitaire listeners if you haven't heard that one in advance of the new episodes on TV you really should because it's brilliant and it was so confident it didn't waste times you know over explaining who Charlie was and what relationship the Doctor was and I think a new listener who didn't know would have been just swept along and all and probably would have had a great time um, I really really liked this one as I say my first time round I loved it I mean the whole stuff with the like the doctor, sort of hiding in the way he's hidden away in the train when, and then in fact I come across yes. the border, and there's hidden, just, in a, hidden in a coffin, listeners. Yes, it's. I think there's so much fun. You can just hear India's obviously back playing Charlie for the first time in a wee while mm. in an Eighth Doctor story, and there's such a relish to her voice and just the glee, and um, just a fantastic yeah. performance. However, there is something I have picked her up on. All oh, right. right, in the story. Of course, they're talking about the train crossing the border near Anan, or as we would say in Scotland, Annan. Oh my goodness! So I have politely ticked her off that <laughs> and, and, uh, and she accepted that. Yes, I don't, she's wrong. I, I don't think I noticed that. What, yeah, it's about three or four times when I the was, train's crossing, when the doctor you know, goes off the train, and it's uh, at Anan. I listened to that one walking home after a seven a.m. start at the, the exhibition centre a couple of weeks ago. So <laughs> that detail might have passed me by. Yeah, it's it's the the clear sort of. 39 Steps influence is obvious because there's all the beginning, the bit at the beginning with the Memory Man, which is one line in the book which doesn't have any real bearing on the rest of the story, but has been, you know, obviously it gets extrapolated a lot in the, the Hitchcock movie. Am I right, sir? All that stuff. Um, and of course, they get the message from the 11th Doctor straight away, William Tell being the key. Yeah. And there's a bit of confusion, really, with all of that, ultimately. But it's, I mean, 
Of course, yes, we say the memory man gets shot after giving some important info, which is obviously what happens at the at the end of the Nine Steps movie. Spoilers. But it was it was really twisty turny, like the tweedy old ladies who you think are gonna be baddies and turn out to be goodies, and um there was a bit which is so Alan Barnes it was unbelievable when they quote the lyrics to Panic by the Smiths. <laughs> was about when he says I think what we need is panic on the streets of London Dublin and the I was like come on <laughs> I lolled um, that would seem like a very very Alan Barnes thing to do I kind of I don't know too much to say about this one because it really it doesn't fail in any way it's spot on it's really really confident Michael Maloney's really good as yeah he's, he's terrific and, yeah. and you know I've been critical in the past about how the balance of companion actor with, with guest voice has been a bit off but this was perfect because Charlie had lots and lots of scenes with his character so it was you know with um with Hillary so it, it worked really really well from that point of view Charlie was the focus of it which you know we're sort of used to from a lot of our stories the Doctor was you know wasn't it that much um, India's Paul McGann voice was really good you could sort of you know you know as good as Nicholas Collin was, the, the intonation and the, no offence Sophie, <laughs> as good as, you know, Nicholas Collin was, you can just imagine him saying the lines exactly the way she said them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's fair to say this is an absolute favourite and it's one we've not covered in Pieces of Eighth because we've been hard, it's so impossible to get hold of Alan Barnes. I know, he's a trickster. But, I'll, I'll, you know, go on Alan, go yeah, on. You know you want to. We Alan. love what you do. We're completely on your side. We would love to get you on to either this or Piece of Eight and just and talk about, frankly, how good you are. Yes. So, <laughs> at the um, risk of being a complete brown nose. Yeah. It's to, the old uh, Jim White to quote him when he's talking about Brian Loudrup, the footballer, when he played for Rangers. So, Alan, why are you so great? <laughs> I always remember the um, we used, guy who I used to work with in HMV when I started called John Neary. Do you remember it always used to cut back to Jim White and he'd be sat there with a sort of fixed grin? Yes. Um, but the thing, me and John Dini used to always say, cheers, mate. <laughs> That's exactly what Because like. <laughs> it would cut back to Jim with his fixed grin going, because he just had a, you know, um, some other reporter at the yes. at the stadium or at the ground, whatever, phoning in his, 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 um, his post-match review or whatever, and it would be cut back to his fixed grin. Cheers, mate. <laughs> and <it'd be> <laughs> so cheers, mate, you know. Pass it. Oh, could you give? Can I borrow? Give us over some carry. Could you pass me? You know, give us a throw me over. A, cheers, mate. Oh, that's so yes. <laughs> For those of you who are wondering who we're talking this about, you can the, actually find Jim White on Talk Sport every day in, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. in the UK, and uh, you'll hear exactly what we mean by that. But anyway, yes, we're not here for the Talk Sport podcast. No, we'll get we'll get Jim on another episode actually to find to talk about his appearance in that that big Finnish story that was set in um around the, <laughs> <laughs> the 1990s Scottish Cup final. Yes. <laughs> and when he played himself as a young man. Anyway, yep. that's a whole. Let's, Briggsy will give me a row for spoiling that. Absolutely. Let's move on to story number nine, yes. Night of the Whisper by Kevin Scott and Mark Wright. Speaking of Briggsy, God bless him. That's a bit of a thankless task, wasn't it? Ninth Doctor Rose and Captain Jack. Yes. I'm right. Let's get it out of the way. This one suffers from not having Billy or or Barrowman involved. I think. This, what really sells the other ones for me is that you've got like Nicola coming back or Carol Ann or Sophie or, or whoever um, I'm not saying Nick does a bad job by any stretch it, he's great his Ninth Doctor voice does the job I think his Captain Jack voice sounds a bit more like um, Commander Shaw from Stingray <laughs> than John Barrowman this is one I'm going to be honest with listeners I really didn't enjoy this one it was nothing to do with Briggsy, nothing to do with the fact that there was no regular people involved. I just found it very generic and very uninvolving. 
There was some, you know, some good stuff like the Eleventh Doctor appearing in one of the big Blade Runner type advert screens, Captain Jack, in disguise um, of a reporter. I mean, I felt that it points the guest voice sounding more like Captain Jack than, than yeah, John Schwab. I thought yeah. that too. And I, there was points I was a little bit distracting. There was an awful big info dump at one point, and but at the same time, it did feel to be to be positive about it. Whilst I found it incredibly derivative, <laughs> and I, re- I remember messaging Kenny while I was listening to it, listeners saying, "I'm really struggling." It was the one that I almost gave up on. Frankly, wow. it did feel, it did have that sort of slight inauthentic vibe to it. I can imagine it being on TV between the Doctor dances and Boomtown. It just had, to me at least, an awful lot of ideas and imagery that would just flog to death elsewhere, and there never really f- felt like there was an awful lot at stake really for the Doctor and Rose I just couldn't get into it at all maybe it would have been I would have got into it more if John Barrowman or Billy Piper had been involved but again that's not a, a criticism of, of Nick who was you know who was great I just I couldn't get into this one that's bizarre because I actually I really listened to this this morning because I'd listened to it again weeks ago when you'd mentioned and I was fully aware that you weren't too happy with it mm. so I re-listened to it this morning and I really enjoyed it. Right, okay. What, I found that, for me, it fits in perfectly with that sort of Russell T. Davis first season vibe there. Yeah. You've got the long game kind of feel. Absolutely. Or the end, you know, the parting of the ways. Absolutely. Bad Wolf, you've got that. It's a 2000 AD yep. story. Uh-huh. And that's what I particularly enjoyed yep. about it because I think the Ninth Doctor world that we get in that one season on TV, it does feel like it sort of like it sort of fits in nicely with that 2000 AD vibe. Mm-hmm. Here's the things that you know and you recognise and they've been distorted and you know, pushed in a particular direction. I mean, stuff like um, like the, the villain's part, World Spain, I think it's a wonderful part. I think it's just the Nick brings such a relish to the fact he's getting to play a giant werewolf kind of guy. Well, see, this was the thing I didn't grasp. I was so engaged with it, I didn't really grasp till later on he actually was a wolf. I was mentioned pretty much right in the first just, line when he meets I, Rose. <laughs> I know, but I just it didn't. I, I, I was. I just. I couldn't get into this one. At all. Yeah. I'm glad you liked it, and I agree with you. Like it felt, as I, I did say, it felt very authentic. But yeah, it just. I just couldn't. No, sorry. Anyway, but, keep no. But no, I, 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 I mean, listened to all the positive things you have to say, and I yeah. probably will agree with them. I mean, I think there's. Um, I mean, right from the word go, there's a mention of Kronk Burgers mm-hmm. and sort of start thinking, okay, here we go, it's a 2000 AD kind of vibe. Yeah. And I thought, you know, Billy, she's working as a waitress in a cocktail bar, bizarrely enough. And um, and so that kind of fits in with her in season two when she's working doing oh, yeah. chips and things like yeah. that. And for me, it's sort of it's all these wee things that sort of made it feel authentic to me. And I just, I mean, yeah, I enjoyed it. In fact, that you've got, when we get the twist as to who the, the super... Um, the whisper. Yes, the whisper. Yeah. I was the, the vigil, who the vigilante is. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I never saw that coming as to who she was. Okay, I mean, I was kind of like, it got to that point and I just honestly didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that bad? But these listeners, I've got to be honest with you, I'm not going to sit in line and sort of say, oh, I thought it was great. I mean, there was there was some stuff I thought it did well and I thought Brexit did a great job, but I just, I was just like, I was unengaged by it. It's the only one this time that I really didn't like. And despite it having obvious positives, but I felt given that so this, given that so many, given that every other one had a returning guest cast member, this one just felt too out of step. Too it felt too much of a, a dislocation sort of thing. I, it, the fact that um, it was all, it was difficult. It was difficult for me to get involved really because Piper and Barrowman, you know, there was no way obviously Eccleston was going to be on it. I mean, even if they'd done one set between. Dalek in a long game and got you know 
Bruno what's his face you know Langley. yeah and to do it that might have sold it a little better you know through his point of view I just felt it was it was difficult for me to engage with well okay well at least we've disagreed but we've varied our yes. points respect each other's yes, points yes absolutely and you know it, there's no way in heck with 11 stories you're going to love every single one of them yeah absolutely but hey we do know that with number 10 Death Steel by Darren Jones with the 10th Doctor and Donna we're in absolute agreement. yes very much so Tourists on the deadliest planet in the universe, listeners, and some brilliant deaths. Catherine Tate and this one playing Donna. I'll say up front, I think some of Catherine's narration was, third person narration was a little flat. All the performance stuff was excellent. Um, there was one death in particular, I thought she kind of <laughs> undersold it slightly. The bit when the guy gets sort of, I can't remember which one person it was, gets sort of zapped with the thing and then liquefied on the spot. <laughs> that was, I was just like, whoa! It could have, and this one in a way it kind of I think I did a texture that I, I can't remember if I texted you or I wrote it no I wrote it down it was kind of like across to me between Voyage of the Damned and Planet of the Dead mm-hmm. and something from a 1977-78 Doctor Who annual story I think I know what you mean by that I think this the fact you've got like the crustacean aliens yeah gives it that kind of feel um, I mean for me I think I remember at the time I was gobsmacked that Catherine Tate mm. was doing Doctor Who so soon. Yes. You know, after she'd last been on screen, which, yeah. you know, and obviously I was delighted. Yeah. Because it makes you think, oh, she's had a good time doing that. The fact she's willing to come back and revisit Doctor Who makes you think, okay, there could be a big finish in line in the future. Absolutely. And of course, a couple of years down the line, yep. there would be. So, yeah, I think the Donna stuff she delivers brilliantly. And I think she's she's definitely engaged with it mm-hmm. I think the fact she's you know, she's invested and she's definitely prepared it properly yeah. it's not just a turn up read it and off you go yeah because all, all of the sort of obviously Catherine has to do a lot of the other voices and all of her guest voice that if you like guest voices that she had to do were all excellent um, there's some really good stuff for Donna like you know her relationship with Crux the fact that Donna has to hide inside Crux is that, very very I very, held very with well laughter at that um, really I was I, I thought it was really funny I, no I didn't laugh I was worried I was like you know I was like shit they're gonna, they might get Crux has put himself in real danger here mm-hmm. to protect her I was really touched by the yeah. fact that, that he was doing that for her because that's what I was saying when, when I felt it was across between um, Voyage of the Damned and Planet of the Dead Voyage of the Damned is is the Doctor Who disaster movie and this is similar sort of vibes whereas you know the, the survivors of this you know tourist thingy and the and the, the sort of space bounty and the pirate guys that have rocked up as well. They're all they're all fighting for survival, if you pardon the pun. And um there's a bit when the sort of tour guide woman very, very early on who's survived the sort of initial sort of attack, as it were, um, she just gets sort of like sucked down into the ground and he's just like it comes out of nowhere. It's like when Roddy McDowell dies in the Poseidon adventure, spoiler, it just sort of it wrong foot shit and it really raises the stakes it's that Russell T Davis thing of characters actually die when you least expect it yes and I think that's what Darren sort of evokes in there yeah. and I think he captures it perfectly ah it was it was as I say it felt like a I mean it had the, the sort of scope and it had the the, the RTD era specific stuff as you say of like very well written guest characters you know sketched in but you get the, the, the types immediately without feeling like cliches but the limitless imagination and slightly out there quality because there's a lot of this stuff they would have really struggled to do in a BBC budget regardless even the modern stuff but it had that that's what I mean when I compare it to Doctor Who annual story when it would be a text piece that you, and all the all the imagery would be in your imagination there was some cracking stuff in it. I mean obviously the 11th Doctor um, his message is the, the, to stop the, the Wraith mining company to save Erskine and of course Erskine turns out to be the daughter of Professor Erskine and all this sort of stuff and it's alien tech that's making this planet making Death's deal the, 
the deadliest planet in the universe and all and all that stuff is sort of very satisfyingly sort of laid out and played out and evolves it doesn't there's no complete opposite of the previous one it all feels very organic there's not a big it doesn't grind to a halt when everything gets explained as to what's going on I know and Catherine's Davy Tennant voice is all right. <laughs> yeah, it's meant to be. Actually, just when you mentioned Darren there, why don't we have a quick pause and why don't we hear from him? I would love to hear from him. Hi, I'm Darren Jones. I'm the author of Death Steel. Welcome to the Power of Three again in a very short space of time since your last appearance. Dave and I have just been chatting about how much we love this and right. it must have been a real joy for you to be invited to not only be involved but also to write Catherine Tate's first return to the part since the TV. Yes, that was great. I mean, oh God, it's over 10 years ago. I think it was 20, must be 2012, spring 2012 when I sort of got approached to to do it, I think by John Ainsworth. And he explained the whole destiny of the Doctor idea and what was going to happen and then said, we'd like you to do the 10th Doctor. And I was like, who could not? Because <laughs> um, I'd done a couple. I'd only done a couple at that point, which were both eleventh Doctor stories. So this was an joy, and the fact that it was more than just a, an audiobook, it was part drama, part audiobook. That was a good attraction as well. So yeah, it was a, that was a bit of a thrill. And was Catherine in there right from the very start for you? Initially, um, I think it was a bit open to start with actually, but I think when you got. As it got, got as it went along, it sort of came, when they got her on board, I think it was definitely right. We're definitely doing Donna. So that was yeah. So that was as soon as I knew that was I knew it was definitely Donna. It was like right now I can really dig into it, get all the Donnerisms in out of the script. It must have been the delight of getting to write for that character because it really comes across in Catherine's performance oh. that it just it sounds so Donna. Yeah, yeah, I think. Because she is a brilliant character, and she's you know my favourite. I think of all the well, a lot of people's favourites as well of all the companions in the the Return series. Yeah, just getting all those little jokes and mannerisms and comedy that she can do, and that comes from Donna. Even though when she's not being comical, the character those 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 moments come out, and her rapport with the with the Doctor is always brilliant. And Catherine was brilliant as well. I, I went to the recording, and she sort of turned up and. Uh, Basically, she was brilliant. She just did a, a rehearsed record, basically, and it was just instantly back into it. And doing a great David Tennant sort of, uh, not impression as such, but a sort of, you know, yeah, an impression, not an impersonation, but an impression of, of the Tenth Doctor. She's brilliant at that. And all the other voices as well, because it's such a big cast in this story of secondary characters. With a little help from sort of a bit of sound effects, but, you know, she, she managed to define them really well. Was the off-world setting given to you, or were you pretty much allowed to go and let your own imagination run free? No, I mean, the only thing really was that that you know that eleventh Doctor message that had to be in each story. That was the only sort of given. But story-wise, I was given yeah, just do anything. And I did my usual, which was pitch three or four stories. Actually, one of them, one of the stories I pitched, ended up being Cry of the Voltress. Yeah, I think it was called Song of the Sirens in this, but without ice warriors in it. But uh, but the one that I, I was quite keen to do this this idea of I wanted to go big you know as it's audio have a really big epic sort of story and the idea of a whole planet which is the, basically the deadliest planet in the galaxy with these monstrous life forms 
because I'm a big fan of those movies like, you know, The Land That Time Forgot and At The Earth's Core when I was a kid and you thought, like, oh, what's the next monster that's going to appear? What's going to attack them next? So it was kind of like that sort of feel to it. And yeah, and I kind of, I think at the time I'd been, it was kind of based around the Great Barrier Reef, that was the idea, because I always take monsters from, I'm creating a new monster of creature. I look at nature and I think, well, how can I mutate and change that? And then I think there'd been a, a documentary series, wildlife documentary series about the Great Barrier Reef. And so I was looking at coral and crustaceans and I thought, well, what if those were a hundred times bigger and on land instead of in the sea? And that's kind of how it evolved creating this monstrous landscape and the character of crux is just brilliant i think just the the, the yeah. dynamic that he has with donna is brilliant and i think particularly you can just sort of picture catherine sort of if, if you know on screen sort of just be like but you're like a space lobster or things or whatever it yeah. may be you know all, all these sort of encounters space clams and just it's wonderful it's just you can just yeah. so visualize I it i can't remember how i came up with that character i think i because it was, you know, I think one of the things was, oh, I've got this cast of tourists, secondary characters. Because I like those, I always love those Doctor Who stories where it's a cast of characters which the Doctor's trapped with. And so I was like, coming up with different creatures and different characters to, to fill those roles. And I don't know where Crux came from. I guess maybe it was just the whole coral underwater stuff sort of inspired me. But this idea of a, effectively a, a, a living humanoid mollusk just intrigued me it was friendly not a monster but you know an alien who was friendly that idea that you know aliens can be you know can be completely weird but can be your friend as well and that moment my favorite bit where donna has to climb inside him to survive being chewed by a giant worm i mean I, that was like oh my god that i love that i love fighting that this is yeah. that sort of that moment is just i think one of the best things i've done in Doctor Who, at least. Yeah, now, Dave and I were disagreeing when we were discussing it because I thought it was, you know, really comedic and dramatic, and Dave thought it was really, really tense. So we both sort of, you know, we both enjoyed it in different I like ways. I suppose it is. It is both, though, isn't it? It's kind of it's ridiculous and silly, but at the same time, it's quite terrifying to have to include yourself in, inside another creature and hold your breath but, and hope for the best. But it's, it's also very silly as well. I think because it is a comical moment because she says, oh, it's like Zorbing. It was, I went Zorbing in Spain. I hated it. You know? <laughs> so there is a comedy in it as well. But yeah, I, there, was, there was lots of, I was able to do a lot of out there stuff in that story. Particularly like the fact that we've got the planet being affected by the outside forces and that's what's upsetting the equilibrium I can't even say it, the equilibrium and uh, yeah. I think that was you know it sort of it sort of does that sort of thing that TV the TV show would do sort of like there is a message there it's not rammed down your throat but it's it's nice and subtle yeah I think I was looking at I think there's quite a few of my stories which have that sort of environmental don't mess with nature be kind to nature sort of theme I think you'd think I have the jungle and paradise lost as well. Those audios have similar themes, so that was definitely something like I wanted to come through. Yeah, sort of protecting the, not damaging the environment, not um, taking advantage of a natural environment. Um, so yeah, that was definitely in my head when I was writing it. How did you find working in this slightly different format, with that as you said earlier, sort of partly narrated and partly performed? Mm -hmm. It was 
Yeah, but well, because I'm I'm a scriptwriter mainly anyway, so it was more like rather than writing prose, it was more like even though it, it was prose, but it was set out on the page as narrator says the prose, then Donna Crux exactly. So it was um yeah, it was for me it was it was fairly easy for me to snap into that. It was just kind of trying to get the balance, trying to get enough of the drama because there was another actor, Duncan Wisby, who played Crux and Erskine. And it's about sort of making it worthwhile having another actor by giving them enough to say. I think yeah. You know, so he had two parts to say, two uh, two parts to perform. So it's just yeah, finding a balance. Yeah, and uh, John was telling us earlier that Duncan and Catherine were at drama school together. Yes, they were. I think yes, and because and I don't think they'd seen it because I remember on the day of recording they they sort of went hi, oh, and I don't think they'd seen each other for years and years. So it was a it was quite a nice little reunion. Yeah. I'm sure that that probably helped her settle in as well and yeah and get going with it so any other memories from the writing of this one was it always death steel any working titles along the way um I, well the working to my initial working title was the deadliest planet in the galaxy which is like the greatest show in the galaxy it was like oh i do like that and then i thought well i thought actually i don't know where death steel came from i i would love sort of messing around with names so it's like um yeah, things like the, the Howling Jupiter and Death Steel, and having all these sort of slightly odd names that you wouldn't expect for spaceships or planets. I think I think I got that from Ian, Ian Banks, who's in his novels. You know, I've read a few of those, and he always has very strange names for spaceships and like that. And actually, Russell does as well. You know, when you think of the Medusa Cascade or the Lost Moon of Poosh, they sort of conjure up images in your head. Like the Medusa Cascade feels like something that's very beautiful, but probably very, very dangerous. And stuff like that. So I was kind of playing around with, with words which sort of give a good feel. And I think death's deal is like, well, the obvious question is what's the deal? And the deal is the deal is you die quickly. <laughs> so I kind yeah. of loved all that stuff. No, it definitely it comes across. It really does feel like a, a perfect season four story. It fits in our series four. It's not season four, it's series four. It has that it just evokes that atmosphere entirely and he must have been really pleased when you heard the final version. Oh yeah, as I said, Catherine just really, really snapped back into it and was brilliant all the way through. And yeah, to actually, I think she'd done a couple of audio books, but I don't think she's actually done any dramatics readings since she left. Um, so that was lovely to hear her actually being Donna as you know, playing Donna rather than just reading Donna. That that was really satisfying to hear and imagine that seeing it in person as well in studio that would have been such a thrill as well oh yeah meeting was great yeah she was um telling us lots of stories in between you know at lunchtime and stuff about what she'd been up to and stuff so that was, it was great to just to chat yeah yeah so when you look back on this one death steel a happy experience yeah and one of my faves i think you know partly because it's donna and just that that ability to, to to really let rip and just do a story which was big and epic. Um, I really enjoyed, enjoyed doing that. Doing stuff which you can't do in the can't really do in the TV show, but you can do on audio. Although now, who knows? Because with Disney involved and bigger budgets, who knows what we're going to get? But at the time, I think this would have been beyond beyond the resources of the BBC. But still trying to keep it keep the tone of it right for the for the period it's meant to be set in. We think that you definitely did, and as I say, it's one of our favourites right. in this batch. So we thank you for not only writing it, but for taking the time to have a wee chat as well today. So thank you very much, Darren. 
Thank you. Do you know what's really surprised me? That Darren's not done more Doctor Who. He seems to do the odd bit here and there, like for BBC Audio. And I'm genuinely surprised that I think Big Finish used him to do uh, Cry the Vultress, which was an Ice Warrior. Oh, yeah, I remember story. That. That's a great story. Brilliant. Yeah, flipped in that one, wasn't she? Yep. <laughs> I think it's a great story. I yeah. Mean, I'd be. I'm surprised. If, um, Briggs is probably going to fall out with me after listening to this if he is listening. So, but yeah, get get Darren in for some more. Definitely. Definitely. No, it's 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 one of the best. It's like it was quite a nice contrast to the previous one. Quite a contrast to the next one. And the the proper gross out horror elements were fantastic. There was bits and I was just sort of like, oh, like the guy obviously you get as I mentioned already. The guy gets sort of like speared and then dissolved and then I was so you know I genuinely thought Crocs was going to die. So when Donna get, gets him inside the ship and and he's and they get him away safely, I was sort of like I was a wee bit sort of choked up. I was like, thank goodness. I was really really worried. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's it's a great story. The, the characterisation is fantastic, and you do, as you say, you've got that feeling of real peril, and yes. you do worry, particularly when like, there's the whole crux being digested with of Donna course, inside, I mean, which that, is great. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, you know, Catherine's reading of that bit was really really good about how claustrophobic it was, and you you really really worried for them both. I was, you know, I didn't. You were saying he found it funny. That's fascinating how we receive things in different ways. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, but no, for me. One, definitely one of the best parts of the, the whole series yeah, definitely. It's, it's right up there and then of course the final part was The Time Machine by Matt Fitton with The 11th Doctor and Jenna Coleman yes reading was, her only big finish work to date who was excellent quite frankly not playing Clara sadly but um, doing a great job as Alice and managing to make Alice not sound like Clara yes which was good it was very Matt Fitton I could see you know, I was about 15-20 minutes into it and I thought who wrote this? And I checked, and I was like, ah, of course. And I mean that in a good way. Yes. Um, I like this one a lot. Very straightforward. And obviously it has the job of tying everything up. I'm not going to try and attempt to summarise all of the other stories and as to explain how they all linked in and what, what was involved. But even when that bit is done in the story, it didn't feel like a massive info dump. It felt, no, you know... Everything does come together. It's like it's been pl- properly yeah. planned and not um, just sort of whacked together at the end. And the guest voice in this one obviously is Michael Cochran. Michael, no, not the interior! Don't take <laughs> me back to the interior! Yep. Michael Ghostlight Black Orchid Cochran, um, who's tremendous. Yep, and there's also Nicholas Briggs as the Crevix as well. Of course, and the twist is obviously that, the spoilers, listeners, are gonna, yeah, we're going to say spoilers, we're going to pause so you can go and listen to all 11 episodes. Come back in 11 hours. In fact, no, they're all about virtually 80 minutes, aren't they? Something like yeah. The full running time of the CD. Oh, as I say, I felt that with one or two of them. <laughs> anyway, yeah, his character, Professor Chivers, is Cedric from the first one, all grown up. And yeah. it's that I'd forgotten that particular revelation. So when the doctor sort of identifies, and how good was Jenna's 11th doctor? It was spot on. She's bang on. I'm, I'm gut, it made me sort of gutted that that she hasn't done anything else for BF. It feels like, a, you know. If I think if they got Matt and Jenna back for a couple of box sets, I'd be very, very happy. I think a lot of people would be. Did you see that they met up at some charity event recently? Oh, I didn't. They were, they were no. They were sort of they met up at it. I don't know if it was arranged or by just right. chance, but they met up and they oh, were that's nice. seen chatting and well, that's laughing good. and joking. So well, that's fingers good. crossed. That's good. Do you know what? Oh, they should be paid to work together and have a reunion. Imagine that being paid to have a reunion. <laughs> Where could they do that? I could think an audio studio would be quite. Yeah, good. exactly. That's what that's what we're hitting at. Clearly, clang. It was, it was really good and, and I, f- I worry that um, because it's the final chapter you, you worry about it maybe not quite 
you worry that it's maybe not going to manage to stand alone, but it functions very well in its own in its own terms without just acting as a conclusion. All the stuff with the other time agent guy and the way that you know the whole thing about Cedric sort of building the time machine because he told himself about it sort of thing. And it was it was quite touching. Cedric being involved, you know, the, the references to you know to to Bob Dylan and and such like calling back to the first one. It worked very well. It's the sort of thing like to sort of pitch the landing of a an eleven story series the real danger is that you know because there have been a few we're not going to mention any names there have been a few Doctor Who season finales over the years in the revised series that haven't been quite as satisfying and haven't lived up to all the potential and everything set up by the ongoing arc and everything through them but I think this did a really good job it didn't feel like an anticlimax or anything like that it felt organic and the way that everything was sort of tied in but it, it all works really, really well. Very satisfying. There wasn't a, you didn't sort of come away from it going, oh well, you didn't talk about that or what about that bit because because it tied everything up and because each story was strong enough on its own, it, the whole thing was just yeah satisfaction yeah. incarnate really. And, I mean, the thing that really sort of weirded me out, particularly hearing Night of the Whisper Death Deal, uh, Death Deal, and the Time Machine, was the fact that we're using sort of new CD themes, and here we were in a big finish. Of course, sort of release. No, yeah, I mean when the the Eleventh Doctor one, especially when the bam 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 bam, which I quite liked at the start of his yeah. stuff. That I was like, oh, and I skipped it back till the start. It was it was um, I mean obviously it was a it was a co-production between BF and Audio Go, and, yeah. and I'm told. I mean I didn't, as I said at the top, I didn't buy this as it came out. I'm told that there was a delay with the final. There was. There actually was a big worry because they went out of business after the release of Death's Deal. Yeah. So Big Finish were, they had the audio files, mm -hmm. but of course this is sort of like, not quite, you know, as things work now with this, this instant, you know, downloads and things like yeah. that. So Big Finish didn't have the cover artwork or anything like that. So they had to produce all that to release the final disc. So they had, they had the brilliance of Alex Mallinson. So right. he went through and he recreated those cover designs from scratch. So everything was created so it could come out oh, you know, really? within the right time. Wow. They later did get given the finished correct version, you know, like the proper ones. Because if you look at the packaging, the CD is just slightly different. Right. It's I mean it's not hugely noticeable, but it's very much right, you know, okay. fits in. But there's the slight differences in the way it looks. So Right. Ah yeah. I was, see that's what I was I was gonna ask you if you knew anything about that, because I hadn't realised that so BF basically had to pick up the slack and issue the C D themselves. Yeah. But what do you go had done the first ten? Was that how it went? Yeah, pretty much. So. Wow, oh my goodness. I mean I'd read I saw when I I did a bit of Google noodling after, you know, listening to it and saw something said about, you know, there was a delay because of audio goes sadly sort of going on, going under. We're still waiting on the talking book version of the Unearthly Child novelisation, aren't we? Yeah. Um, what on earth could have delayed that? But it was, um, it was interesting. Actually, I've been completely unaware because I say 2013, I was just feeling my way back in and I didn't buy this story for, for a few years afterwards. Um, and I bought the whole thing in one go as a download. It's kind of news to me that had happened, and I'm I'm glad. That's that's fascinating that he had to he had to basically make up his own CD cover for it. That's yep. that's fascinating because yep. obviously the cover of that one is a little simpler. Well, it's just the picture of Matt and the sort of you know yep. that, the cube, that squarish the cube thing behind yep. him. That's very interesting. Very very interesting. Mm, my boy. Mm. Mm. So, do you think that obviously as a one-off, this has worked? Oh, absolutely. Do you think that it's something that could be done, you know, occasionally something like this, like a, a collect and build storyline? Yeah, I mean, it's the sort of thing like you'd have to have someone. Because we've had a few things recently, you know, well, recently, like a few years ago, obviously, with Time Lord Victorious and more recently, Doomsday's been going on. 
Um, I think it's the sort of thing that works if you've got a clear vision for it and you've got enough enough people involved that's going to make it interesting. Like, Tyler Victoria's worked obviously because, you know, Paul McGann and, and DT were both involved and I believe that Paul McGann was involved in, in Doomsday. I haven't really been paying much attention to Doomsday, to be honest. But I think this is what, if they were doing it again, you would need good writers and you would need you need as many of the guests sort of original cast coming back as because they, they really work better without it You'd, and you would need the discipline because there's a danger with these things that they become endlessly sort of inward looking and overly sort of you know because I've found some of the a few of the, the there was one I can't remember what it was called now there was one one event in the Titan comics that I just gave up on because it was just so convoluted and overloading with sort of you know continue I mean it's got to be a good story in its own sake it just can't exist for the sake of continuity and it can't yeah. be full of you know I mean, that's what I, one thing I really liked about Destiny Doctor was his discipline with that you know the, the Captain Yates one was probably as far as it went as far as trying to do a continuity type thing that worked because Andrew's terminology was spot on and because Richard Franklin was so good and you know the story was, was strong enough and because it was the only one that really did that, everything else just was almost like a, a regular adventure. And that, that that's my worry, if they were to do something like this again, that it was, because obviously Big Finish have done something vaguely similar this year with Once in Future, where they've gone through, you know, all the different doctors and, you know, a story a month and all that sort of stuff. And I've found the results of that to be a little bit mixed at points. What I think Desperate Destiny Doctor works is that it's disciplined and it concentrates on each individual story being really strong without having to rely on smash and grab random character team-ups to try and sell it. It works really, really well in its own terms. It's, I mean, BF regularly sort of put it on sale. I believe the downloads are all fairly cheap on their own terms now. It's definitely worth checking out if you haven't done so already. Absolutely agreed. And you can get it in a box deal, bun- a box set bundle deal type thing as well. Mm-hmm. So you can get all the 11 stories for a far greater reduced price I think but yeah definitely recommend it I thoroughly enjoyed it then and to be honest revisiting it it's actually been a real pleasure yeah and I, I mean, want to say thank you for suggesting it because nah. I haven't listened to this in so long <laughs> well I thought it was a good one to do just as I say it was the 10th anniversary of the, the 50th anniversary thingy so it's um it's um it's a fun one to, to think about I have a massive podcast listening backlog as a result <laughs> so apologies to, to Max and Rich and Brandon and Ross because I'm a little bit behind on your episodes do you think you, you asked me there I mean do you think it's the sort of thing that would be worth doing again do you think it's what would you what's your sort of feeling I think I think it would be I mean in fact there's still obviously there's different actors and actresses that are still around from all the different eras and mm-hmm. um, the third doctor era we've only really got Katie mm-hmm. uh, who's who's still you know particularly working regularly mm-hmm. and I think it'd be great if you know something involving her and you could use obviously there's padders Maureen O'Brien mm-hmm. Louise is still Louise of course yeah and you know obviously Davis and Eir onwards were, yeah. were sorted so yeah I think it would be fascinating to have something done but again I just say it needs to have a good good strong storyline worked out in advance I mean it, the, the fact that everything's interlinked just one element goes forward into the next one it's a bit like um, it reminds me of, of Decalogue sure the original Decalogue volume where there's like sure where there's, like, there's one object in the story and then it's passed on whether it's like a like a key ring or something like that sure. and it's passed into the next story and there's that sure. constant moving through so I think mm-hmm. something like that would be lovely mm-hmm. and I think it does work mm-hmm. when it's done properly so I would yeah the fact yeah. it's done occasionally the fact it's not all the time I think you know for a 
for an event to use the, the I believe that's the comics term to, but to have an audio event something like that I think yeah. it would be, be rather nice it doesn't need to be for a particular anniversary but if somebody comes up with a yeah. great story and it do doesn't it. And, as, and it doesn't need to rely on returning monsters or, or anything like that it's, I mean I, th- I think it's such a, it's a good idea you know just one story per doctor and you know having a good strong hook for each one that doesn't rely on the series past or series history when you th- put it when you put it in plain terms like that it shouldn't be too d- I would imagine <laughs> I've never put one together but I imagine it'd be quite easy, straight not easy but you know straightforward enough to, to put something like that together and, and make a good job of it I think yeah I mean I this, they, they did it they did it with this one so obviously you know yeah I mean, somebody I else should be able to do it again John uh, John Ainsworth and the team did a great oh, job absolutely. here absolutely you think the only recurring sort of element like continuity element is really the master mm-hmm. in Smoke and Mirrors and yeah. that's about it so yeah. it just shows you a bit of originality and yeah, a bit of you know, good thought, great scripts, and it, and you do get the thing is, we may enjoy some stories more than others. They're all still damn good listens. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there was only one that I really struggled with, and as you said, you mentioned the master that again felt era authentic, and even the one that I didn't like very much, you know, I'm happy to concede and praise it for at points feeling ve- very, you know, I would have loved to. I think if I'd seen it on television, I would have enjoyed it hugely. Yeah. You know, okay. with with echoes and, and Piper and, and Barrow, and I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more. And and it's just, it's just, I suppose like because I don't think Billy or John had started working for BF at this point. Um, so it's a shame that you know they couldn't get one. But obviously, you know, they got hold of Catherine. So it's it's just a shame. But it's just it's just the way it goes. It's you know, it didn't detract from my satisfaction from the whole thing. And I I really did enjoy listening to it again. There was tons of it I'd forgotten. Lots of little bits I'd, for, I'd forgotten. Lots of little bits that I really enjoyed. And on balance, the whole thing works really really well. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for suggesting it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Always a pleasure. Brilliant. But of course, Dave. With this being the power of three, <laughs> there's one thing we have to do. I mean, I don't. Would you agree that this was? It was quite a rich story. Well, I would say so, and I'm, I'm not sure we're going with this, but I think given that Bob Dylan is so important to the the storyline and all that, and I think we have to play out with something from from Bob Dylan from this from 1963. I think, to be honest, don't you? Well, I was thinking because <laughs> Kenny doesn't agree with me, listeners. Well. I was thinking because it's quite a rich a story for yes. rich history. Right. I was thinking that we could maybe go with something that's a bit, you know, fairly richy, something I'm like Lionel sure. Richie and no. You Are My Destiny. No. Oh right, ah, okay. Right, well if you do a needle scratch t- thirty seconds in and you'd leap into blown in the wind by Bob Dylan, I'd be very happy. <laughs> As if I would do that. But hey, am I going to? We'll find we'll out find very out soon. Yes. Tune in. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll be back very soon with another exciting, thrilling episode of the Power of Three podcast. I've been Kenny Smith. I've been David Steele. Peace out. Thank you for joining us. Take care. Bye-bye. a man walk down before you call him a man how many seas must the white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned 
answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing 